And he brings that to a conclusion here in the passage today. It's going to be kind of a transition. Because after this, Paul is not going to be so much arguing for the gospel, defending it like he has been. Now he's going to be talking about the application and the implications of that gospel. And so today is kind of like a capstone. Like this is it. This is the end of his argument. And then he's just going to move on to how that, what that means for you and me. But before we jump into that, um, I want us to pray for the, the youth, the youth group who were at the camp this past weekend. Um, so let's pray together for that as we look forward to looking at the passage together. Uh, Father, Lord, we thank you, uh, Lord, for the willingness of Max and Ashley to serve our students, Lord, as they go to the camp. Um, Lord, thank you for their their investment into the students' lives. And God, we pray that the word that they have heard, um, the relationships built, Lord, that you would use that to draw them closer to you, whether for the first time or just continually, Lord. Uh, God, we pray them for their safety and the way home. We pray that you continue to give them energy and patience. Um, Lord, we just pray for your glory in that. And Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we hear again of the good news of Christ, of the gospel and the freedom we have, Lord, I pray that you would impress this on our hearts. Uh, God, may you lay this as a foundation for our lives each day. Um, Lord, help us. Help us to stand firm. Amen. So just a, a quick reminder of where we're at. So remember, you've got uh, this region in Galatia, which is pretty much modern-day Turkey. Um, and Paul visited there in his first, journey, first missionary journey. And the Galatians were pagans. They were Gentile pagans. But then Paul preached the gospel to them, and they uh, responded with repentance and faith, and they trusted in Christ. Then Paul leaves, continuing on his missionary journey. But then after Paul leaves, shortly after, false teachers come in. They're the name Judaizers. Because they taught the Galatian believers that, hey, in order to become a Christian, in order to stay a Christian, you need to follow the Mosaic Law. Basically, you need to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And so they're teaching that. And Paul, while he's gone, but he hears it, that that's what's going on. And he writes back, and this is the letter we got here. He writes back to them. Uh, upset, very upset, and that's probably a, a, a easy way or a low way to say that because he's very upset. And so we get that. And so we saw the first four chapters working up to this. He's been going on and on of defending the true gospel, that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. And he's been defending that. Then he's been defending his own authority as an apostle in order to defend the gospel. He's gone through proofs of why it's always been by faith alone. He looked at Abraham. Then he went into, if you remember, he talked about the law, the rule of the law, that there's no life in the law. In fact, the law was always meant to point towards Christ. And so he's going through this. And then a couple of weeks ago, he talked about our adoption in Christ. And then this past week was kind of a heavy passage. And we could hear, we could hear kind of this pleading from Paul that he kind of turned a direction, that he stopped laying this defense and this argument for the gospel. And he started pleading with them, don't turn back. Don't turn back. He showed them how you guys started out well, but now it doesn't seem like you're going very well. He says, don't turn back. In the end of that passage, verse 20, he says, I am perplexed about you. He says, I'm at my wit's end. I, I'm not really sure what to, 
what am I supposed to do here? I'm so confused. And then our passage today comes right after that. And it's interesting because you can kind of see that he is at his wit's end. Because up this whole point, Paul's been defending the gospel and very well. Then he says, I am perplexed. Why are you guys turning back? And then he comes to this passage. And what's unique about this passage is that he does take kind of a different direction. He gives an illustration. He's been defending his point about the gospel. And now he gives an illustration. And we'll see that illustration in here. So as we look at this today, I want us to do two things. Number one is just to look at and consider the illustration Paul uses. And number two is what does that mean and how does Paul apply it to the Galatians and thus us? And I'll tell you right now that this is the point, And this has been the point of all the four chapters leading to this point is this. Is that Jesus has set you free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to slavery which is exactly what he comes up in chapter 5, verse 1. And so let's look at this illustration, right? So if you haven't opened your Bibles, be Galatians chapter 4, and as Seth read, verse 21. So here, here's the setup. Here's kind of the context for this illustration. Paul says, tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And this... And remember where this is coming from. He just went through talking, pleading. Why are you turning back? Why are you turning back? I am perplexed. I feel like I've wasted my time with you. Was it all in vain? He's pleading this. And then he says, I am perplexed. I have no idea what to do. And then he says this, tell me, which is a command. He's like demanding an explanation almost. Tell me. You who desire to follow the law, which is exactly what the Galatians were doing. You want to follow the law? Tell me. Do you not read the law? And what he's saying there is that the law itself points us to Christ. That's exactly what Paul argued in Galatians chapter 3. The whole role of the law was pointing us to a Savior, our need for a Savior. As Paul has said, there is no life in the law. Life does not come by the law. Do you not read the law even though you want to be underneath it? So that's how he sets it up. Kind of a, all right. Kind of jabbing them. Tell me. Tell me. You guys want to to read the law? Well, let's do it. And then he moves into the illustration. But before we get to the illustration, look at verse 24. Let's look. How should we interpret this? And this this is important. I'll, I'll explain why. Verse 24. He writes now this after he gives the illustration, which we'll see of Abraham as, as Seth read Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, uh, your, your translation may something different, say something differently. Your, yours might say something like illustration or symbolic or uh, taken figuratively. Some translations will say it. And that, honestly, is a far better translation than um, the ESV, which is I read the allegorically. So and we're sitting on this for a reason. Listen to this. So allegorically, it's not a translation. It's more of a transliteration, which basically means... They just put it in English how it sounds in the original language, which in the original language is allegoreo. You can kind of hear allegory. So they just kind of threw it in English, translator uh, as as allegory. And you may be wondering, well, what's what's the point of talking about this? It's because the term allegory and the interpretation of allegorizing has been completely 
used in history to pervert and twist scripture. And so the reason we're camping on this is because the word allegory, what we typically think of, or at least in history, is not what Paul's talking about here. And that's why the translation of illustration is a far better understanding. Now, allegory has this idea that the text, what is said, the plain meaning of it, is not really what's important. It's this hidden knowledge underneath. That we need someone to explain this hidden meaning. For example, and this has actually been used in church history, um, the parable of the Great Samaritan, uh, the the Good Samaritan. We're probably kind of familiar with that, where you've got the the guy who uh, I believe he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, or one of the two, and he some some thieves come and beat him up, steal him, throw him in a ditch, left him for dead. Then a priest and a Levite, the the righteous guys, come by. They don't do anything, right? But then the Good Samaritan. He comes by, and then he takes care of him, puts him on his animal, brings him to an inn, kind of, kind of, kind of bringing him back to to living. Then leaves, gives the innkeeper money, says, "Hey, take care of him. Whatever you use more of, I'll pay." Right? And we get this the story of Jesus, and the whole point is to show how these righteous men, a priest and Levite, just passed by, but this despised Samaritan actually did what was right. An allegory of that that's actually been used in church history is this. is that That's not what that means. What it actually means is this. Jericho, the city, actually refers to his mortality. The robbers weren't robbers in the story. They're actually the devil and his angels. The priest was the law. The Levite was the prophets. The good Samaritan wasn't a Samaritan. He was actually Christ. The binding of the wounds was actually the restraint of sin. The oil was actually good comfort. The wine was actually an exhortation. The animal was actually the body of Christ. The inn was actually the church. The two denarii that the, the Good Samaritan gave to the innkeeper was actually the two commandments to love. The innkeeper wasn't an innkeeper. It was actually Paul. And then the return of the Good Samaritan in the end is actually the resurrection of Christ. And so you can hear from there, like, what are you getting at? This is obviously not what this is talking about. But that's what allegorizing does. It takes the, the obvious, pretty plain idea of what Jesus is telling here it says, no, that's not what it is. It, they avoid that. It's actually this. And it's like, that's not even close to what it's talking about. So that's why we're camping at this, because allegory, that word, does not, is not what Paul's doing here. And the application, or the, the translation of illustration, is what Paul's doing here. So he's using, as we'll see, is about Abraham and his, uh, with his wife Sarah, his slave Hagar, and the, his kids... He uses that historical account to illustrate a point. And I did this last week. If you remember, I used the example of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot leaving with his wife and his wife turning back and turning to Pillar Saul. Historical account. And there's the meaning is fantastic in the actual sense. I used it to illustrate the point of not turning back. Me using it didn't add some meaning to it. There's actually meaning there. An allegory would completely rip that part off. That's not really what the meaning is. It means this, 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 and it goes on and on. Does that make sense? And so the the, the word of oh, it's an allegory is not a good I, translation, or it's not a translation, but it's not a good idea of it. So Paul, my whole point is Paul is using this to illustrate. He's using this historical account that actually happened thousands of years ago, 4,000, 5,000, whatever it is, to illustrate his point. Why? Because he's perplexed. 
for three chapters, more than three chapters, he's been arguing the defense of the true gospel. Then he pleaded with them. He says, I don't know what else to do. And so he ends. He, he, cap, he, he summarizes his whole argument in this illustration to make this point. So let's look at that. So his illustration begins, verse 22. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And you probably don't need me to remind you of this, of this historical account, but let me just hit some big highlights. So remember that God made a promise, promise to a man, Abraham, that he'll have lots of descendants, that he would bless them. And through his descendants, the nations will be blessed. The problem was, his wife was barren for decades, and they were old. They were past the age of having kids. But God made this promise. Through you, there'll be tons and tons of sense, as, as much as the stars in the sky. So years pass, right? Sarah still does not have kids. And so they try to make it happen on their own strengths and their own wisdom. And so they have Abraham sleep with, with Sarah's slave, Hagar, which was con- completely customary. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's definitely wrong. But at that time, that was customary in the context. And so they do that in their own power. Let's make this happen. She gets pregnant and has Ishmael. But that is not what God has intended. And so he tells them, no, it's through Sarah you have this child. So eventually Isaac is born by God's promise, which was impossible in their age. Abraham uh, recorded being 100 years old and Sarah being 96 years old. So if you're, if you're up there, there's still a chance. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But the point being, this is beyond impossible. First, they were barren for decades, and they're, they're old, and they know it. They repeat that multiple times. How could this happen? We're both old. And like Sarah laughs, if you remember. She laughs. Abraham laughs as well. But the point is that Paul starts making this contrast. Remember, he's using this historical account to illustrate a point. Ishmael, he says, Hagar, Ishmael, is the son of the flesh, he says. Or the son of the, the slave woman. Because they try to do it in their own power, in their own wisdom, their own strength. While Isaac was the son of the promise. Because it was impossible, but God made it happen. It was God that did the work. It was by faith. And so he starts making this contrast, and we see that through the whole illustration. Verse 23, he goes on. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Exactly what I was saying there. Ishmael, the son born according to the flesh, in the sense that they try to do it in their own wisdom, in their own strength. And he represents all those who try to earn God's favor, earn God's acceptance, earn our salvation, our right standing before God, by our own works. And Paul makes that very clear as he goes through this. That's what Ishmael represents. That's what his line, Hagar, Ishmael, what that line represents in this, as Paul illustrates this, or uses it as an illustration. While Isaac illustrates the gospel that Paul's been saying. Remember, it's an illustration. It's by faith alone, apart from works. It's by faith alone, by the promise, faith in the promise. So he continues to contrast this. And so we see the two lines. I'm going to repeat this just to make this clear for all of us. Ishmael, the first line, Ishmael equals works righteousness, which equals trying to earn God, God's, his, God's promise of salvation by works of own self-effort. And we'll see equals slavery, 
The second line that Paul makes is Isaac, which equals righteousness through faith, which equals God accomplishing it, which equals freedom. Two points, two lines that he's contrasting, illustrating with this historical account. Verse 24, he goes on. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. We just talked about this. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. So again, he's taking this historical account, and he's illustrating his point that he's been saying the last four chapters. He says that Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. Hagar, he says, um, the one from Mount Sinai, and refers to the Mosaic Covenant. If you remember at Mount Sinai is where God gave Moses and the Israelites the Mosaic Law and the whole Mosaic Covenant and worked through that. And so that's what Hagar represents. While Sarah represents the New Covenant that's in Christ, by faith in Christ. That's who Sarah represents. Remember now, most likely the Judaizers are reading this letter as well. And being Jews, they despise and they proudfully despise Hagar and Ishmael. They despise them. And Paul just equated the law you guys really like. He equated them with Hagar and Ishmael. So remember that kind of, this was a, a pretty offensive thing that Paul is saying here. But he's making these two lines. They're different. But Paul continues, verse 25. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And Mount Sinai was in the region of Arabia. It's a desert. It's not the promised land. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery, slavery with her children. And so Paul connects this line with present Jerusalem, which was the first century Judaism, which at that time lost track of the truth and was very legalistic. If we keep these laws, if we do these things, then we are right with God. So Paul connects that with them. He says, for she, is slavery, she, for she is in slavery with her children. So Hagar equals Ishmael equals Mount Sinai equals the, the Jerusalem and Paul's day equals the flesh equals slavery. And as we'll see, equals condemnation punishment. So Paul's illustrating that this is all in the same line. Whoever seeks to be accepted by God but of their own accord, of their own strength, is in that same line Paul is saying. He continues, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And so Paul, in that line with Sarah, throws in the Jerusalem above, referring to the city of the living God. In Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews kind of, uh, he talks about the, the heavenly Jerusalem is what's used, or the, the terminology that's used to refer to where the angels are, literally the city of God, where, where believers are, where the living God, where Jesus Christ is, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's where what Paul equates with the line of Sarah. So remember the line of Hagar, and then you have the line of Sarah with Isaac, God's promise the Jerusalem above, freedom, and as we'll see here, inheritance. So he's, he's illustrating this for us. Verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, 
Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who is a husband. This is a, a verse from Isaiah. In the context of that passage that this verse comes from, is Israelites, or as I should say, it's being written to Israelites who were invaded by the Babylonians, who killed, slaughtered, raped, all that, went into their, their, their country, took a good amount of Israelites, and headed them back to their place in Babylon. And this quote that's being uh, quoted here by Paul was from Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, to the exiles. And within that passage, it was all about, you will return. You will return. The promise of return. And it did happen. By God's grace, by his work, they did eventually return back to Israel. Paul is illustrating here, it's God's work. God made it happen. In the same way, the line of Sarah with Isaac was God's doing. It was by God's work. It was by faith in God's work. It was not of them. So there's the two lines that Paul says. He uses this historical account to illustrate what he's been saying all along. You guys, he says, you guys are just like Hagar, like Ishmael, slavery, Mount Sinai, the law, and it leads nothing but to slavery and punishment and condemnation. He says, that's what you want. Remember, he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not hear, listen to the law. So he's, telling, there, he's describing this line. Then he describes this other line of Sarah, of Isaac, the son of the promise, of free, the, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's the two lines, he says. Which one do you want to be a part of? He asked that to the Galatians. Which one do you want to be a part of? And he asked that to us too. Which one do you want to be a part of? The line of Hagar, which is equated with slavery, with the flesh, or the line of Sarah, which is equated with promise, with freedom, with God's work. So there's the illustration. That's where he lays ahead. He's, he's at the end of his line, Paul, and talking to the Galatians. He doesn't know what else to do, so he just illustrates this. They know the account. He says, this is it. This is exactly what you guys are seeking after, and this is what the true gospel is. And then he applies this. And look at this, verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Praise God. And this is the first time that Paul really affirms their faith. There are other times that he, he talks about like their adoption of Christ, but nothing as direct and explicit as this. You are children of the promise just like Isaac. Can, I, I just, when I read that, I was like, well, can you imagine the passage before where Paul's like, have I wasted my time with you? Why are you turning back? And then he says, gives this illustration, says, you are children of promise. He affirms them and praise God, we are not slaves. Those of us who trust in Christ, we are not slaves. He goes on, verse 29, but just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who is born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What is he referring to? Genesis 20, 21.9. 9. 
Moses, who writes Genesis, records Ishmael mocking and making fun of Isaac. Ishmael, the, the son born according to the flesh, was persecuting the son Isaac, the son born, in, born according to the promise. And so Paul kind of builds on the illustration again that, hey, just like Ishmael, who was of this line, was persecuting Isaac of this line, it's just the same like today. And so he's pointing to the, the false teachers. You are the children of the promise. And the Judaizers, they're trying to put the law on you. They're children of slavery. And they're persecuting you with false teaching. So Paul's using this. They're, they're, he's pleading with them. You can still kind of hear the pleading. They are the false teachers. They are of the line of Hagar and Ishmael and slavery. But you are sons of Isaac. He goes on, verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And again, this refers to the historical account of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, where they do cast Hagar out. But the main point in there is that the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the promise. The son of the free woman. Those that depend on God will inherit those that are depending on themselves will not inherit. They cannot coexist. They cannot coexist. And then verse 31, he again affirms, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We are in this line with Isaac, with faith, with promise, with inheritance. We are not with Hagar, Ishmael, slavery, punishment. We are not of that. And then here it is. Like the climax of an action movie. Like the climax of a song that's just been building and building and building. Everything comes to this one point. Chapter 5, verse 1. It all builds up to this. The first four chapters build up to this one point. And here Paul says, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are free in Christ. Stand firm in it. Paul summarizes the whole gospel in this one point. As one pastor puts it, Christ liberated his people so that they may enjoy the freedom of the gospel. Christ liberated his people so that they can enjoy the freedom of the gospel. A term you're probably familiar with is legalism. The idea or the, the belief that you can, um, you live as if you can earn God's grace and acceptance by your own performance, by the things you can do. And legalism is the exact opposite of freedom in Christ. It is submitting to that yoke of slavery. So in legalism isn't something that only a few people fall into. I would argue that legalism isn't something that the church down the road argues or, or falls into. I think we all struggle with legalism. And more often than not is what I would argue, at least for me. But legalism, I think, is like an executioner. that tortures our soul, that rips us apart, 
it stabs us with guilt. It drowns us in shame and it tries to suffocate us with fear. This idea that we have to do these things in order to keep God happy with us or keep him to, to love us. But the truth is not even close to that. It's that Jesus has set you free. He has set you free from earning your salvation. He has set you free from crushing the crushing guilt of your sin. He set you free from ever worrying of trying to remain in God, on God's good side. He has set you free completely free and not just mostly free. He has securely set you free so that you won't be enslaved again. Jesus has set you free. And how great is this freedom? It is amazingly great in full and extent. In fact, if you go to Romans 6.1, Paul, which he's very good at, he'll, he'll kind of, um, he can guess upon what his writers are going to ask. And so he'll bring up the question in his writings. And it's like Romans 6.1, he goes on, and he's kind of answering a question that he knows is going to come out. And the question is this. Are you preaching, Paul, that we can just sin all we want because we're forgiven and that we'll never see punishment again? Is that what you're preaching, Paul? One preacher says this. He says, you are not preaching and you are not believing the true gospel of Christ if you do not get that accusation. If someone is not accusing you, that are you just saying, are you just saying you can sin all you want and you're forgiven anyways? They say that's the test. If you're not getting the accusation, then you are not preaching the full gospel because the full gospel, the freedom, the extent of the gospel is so great that that's a natural accusation that comes because we are forgiven, that we are completely free. As Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Not now, not in the past, and there never will be. So is the gospel really that good? Yes. The gospel is really that good. That's why it's good news. And so we grow. We can grow in the depth of this gospel, believing that we are forgiven for our past, for our present, for the things we're doing now, and for the future. For freedom Christ has set us free. And that's the gospel that Paul has been preaching the last four chapters. We are free in Christ. We are free from the law. We're free from legalism. We are completely free because Jesus Christ has set us free. He has done it, and we can live in it. And then he says, he has two commands. Number one, stand firm, he says. Christ has set us free. Therefore, in the light of this, stand firm. And this is not a suggestion. It's a command. Stand firm. And it's defensive. Hold your ground. Hold the line. We're not on attack. We're not the ones attacking because Christ has already won it. We already have victory. We already won the ground. Now we're just supposed to stand firm and defend it. Stand firm in the freedom of Christ. Hold the line. You might be thinking, this kind of sounds like war terminology, Alice. What is this, some kind of war movie? We are in a war. And it's for my soul. It's for your soul. It's for the souls of your kids and the souls of everyone in our church family. That's what the war is fought over. And Paul is saying, Christ has set us free. Stand firm in the freedom. Stand firm. If you remember in chapter 2, this was a while ago, Paul, he, he talks about when he went to the apostles to talk about the gospel. If you remember, he goes to the, the, to the apostles and they talk about it. And he says that there were false brothers that slipped in trying to enslave them. 
And Paul responds, and this is verse 5 of the chapter, he says, To them, the false brothers who tried to enslave him, he says, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So you're not only standing firm for yourself, but for your kids, for those that you walk with, those of your church. Stand firm in the gospel and the freedom. Freedom in Christ is a present reality, but it's not automatically manifested in the lives of believers. As one one writer says, freedom may be lost or surrendered by those who are not vigilant or willing to defend their freedom from those who would have them become enslaved again. If you're trusting in Christ, we are completely free. We are set free. But there is attack after attack for us to submit again to that slavery, to give up the ground that Jesus has won. Paul says, stand firm. And he says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And there's the command. Do not be held. Do not be entangled. Do not be ensnared again in this yoke of slavery. In the immediate context, he's obviously referring to the Judaizers and the 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 law that the Judaizers are trying to put on top of them, saying, hey, you got to do this, 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 in order to be right with God, in order to continue to be right with God. And Paul says, do not submit to that. You are free, not because of anything you've done, but Christ has set you free, so stand firm. It is a battle. And I think one of the worst things that we can do in a battle is to think we are winning when we're not, and we start to let our guard down. We start to be kind of lax and kind of sloppy. So have you become kind of lax and sloppy when it comes to standing firm in the freedom of Christ? Have you been being enslaved into legalism again, thinking that you have to do these things in order to keep God's favor, keep God's acceptance? Let me give a few signs that this may you may be becoming lax and sloppy. Number one, you're living by guilt and shame. Your life is defined by guilt and shame. Number two, you're drowning in a sense of never doing enough. You can never just rest. Because there's this drowning sense that you're never doing enough. You can never get above the water. You can never do enough. Number three, you're driven by fear. Not by love, not by joy, but by fear. Number five, you're proud. Which it might seem kind of contradictory, but you're proud because there's a self-righteousness. That I am doing these things. Therefore, God is happy with me. Therefore, I am being accepted because I'm doing these things. And it creates this pride, this self-arrogance. With that comes number six, whatever number I'm on, is comparing yourself with others. Living in legalism, we never, we don't have any kind of real standard. We think we have to do these things. And in order to make us feel good as if we're doing it is we compare it to others, especially those that are not doing as well as us, it makes us feel good. Oh, they're not doing that, but I am doing this, therefore God must be happy with me, right? And legalism brings us into that, that self-righteousness, this comparing to bring others down. And then number seven, lacking joy. 
some signs that we are becoming laxed and kind of sloppy and are not really standing firm in the freedom of Christ. Guilt, shame, fear, pride, lack and joy. And let me ask these questions with that as well. When you picture right now God's attitude towards you, do you think of God as disappointed in you or delighting in you? Do you picture God disappointed in you or delighting in you? When you think about prayer and coming before God, do you draw confidence? Yeah, hey, I, I read my Bible this morning. I was doing this. I've been a good wife, a good husband, a good, a good daughter, a good son. And that's where you get this confidence to come before God. Rather than Christ, you, you try to draw from these things you've been doing, your own spiritual life. Do you relate to God as if you're on some kind of probation? As if once, like one moment or any moment, he might haul you back into the prison of his disfavor. You never know where things are at. You're kind of walking on eggshells. You never know where you're at. When you come to worship, do you maintain a respectful distance from God? Just because you don't know if he's angry with you, if he's finally had enough of you because of this last sin you did, you never know where he's at. So you always kind of, I don't want to get too close. When you read scripture, are you reminded of God's endless love? Or merely does it intensify your condemnation? Hey, I'm not doing that. Nope, I'm not doing that. Instead of being motivated by love, like, hey, that'd be awesome. I, I should be doing this. It's more of, I need to do this right now. I need to change this. Because if I don't, God is not with me. He's not for me. He's upset with me. So have we, have you become lax and sloppy about standing firm in the freedom that Christ has given us in the gospel? And we, know, we all know what it's like, right? Having that voice of accusation, like a message after message. You really think God is for you after you just did this? You really think that? God is displeased with you. You are not enough. Or you are too much. That feeling of, I need to do something right now. I need to do A, B, and C in order to earn back God's favor, God's grace, God's acceptance. In different action movies, um, there's always, sometimes there's that scene where there's two armies coming next to each other. And when I think about these scenes, they're more the, um, like back when they had bow and arrows and they fought by sword. Um, sometimes they have a, a scene where the archers will be all ready. They'll call for the archers and they'll be all set up. And then they, they tell them to fire. And so they all send it over. And then you get a view from the opposing side and they look up. And the arrows darken the sky because they block out the sun as they come down. And that's what I feel like a lot of times when we're trying to stand firm, the accusations from Satan is one right after the other. It like blocks out the sun. It blocks out the truth because all we can see is these accusations that you're not doing enough. You're not doing this enough. You're not evangelizing enough. You are a horrible mother. Are you kidding me? No good godly father would do that. You're not leading your family very well. You're not leading your wife very well. You were very disobedient when you did this. Are you kidding me? And these accusations after accusations just come down and just flood us. 
That's when I, when I feel it happens to us. But Paul says, stand firm. Because you are free, stand firm and do not submit to another yoke of slavery. Stand firm. And a lot of times I don't want to stand firm because like, I screw up all the time. But the truth is, it's independent. That freedom is independent of you and me. It's because Christ has set us free. We haven't done the work. He has done it. Therefore, stand firm. And let me end with this. With this verse. Jesus says this to you, to me, to everyone. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And he means it. I will give you rest. The world, our sinful nature, Satan can do all they can to war on us and beat us down. But we can stand firm because it's Christ who set us free and he is victorious and we can hold the ground and we can rest, as Jesus says. Pray with me. Uh, Father, Lord, Thank you, God. I'm just thinking about how, how good we have it in the sense that we're not on the offensive, but we're on the defense. We don't have to take any ground. We just got to hold the ground. But how hard that is for us, Lord, just to hold the what you've already gained. And God, give us strength. Lord, may we preach truth to ourselves that when our feelings, when these thoughts say opposite, they remind us of our sin, of our shame. Lord, give us the grace and the confidence to remind ourselves that, yep, that is true. You know what? That is true. Yep, I did do that. But Christ has set me free. I am forgiven. I am set free. And Lord, give us the strength to continue that and to persevere in that. As we know, it will just come and come and come like flaming arrows. It will just keep on coming. Lord, may we never let our our guard down, but may we stand firm. Uh, Lord, Give us this freedom. Remind us this freedom in the gospel. This week, Lord, as we know things will come up, may we rest. May we just rest. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.